privilege of walking down the streets in that city where that video was shot in India, uh, where Paul and Megan live, and I'm just so thankful for their presence, uh, bringing the light and grace of Jesus, our Savior, to those people in that city. That is made possible by the Lottie Moon St. Valentine's Day offering. Okay. Um, our church has uh, about 14 families living overseas. The vast majority of those are supported by this offering. In the next two years, we estimate that number will grow to about 35 families. Okay. Just do the math with me. Let's say it costs 50 grand to, for a year for a family to live overseas. Probably way more than that, but let's say 50,000. That's a million and a half dollars a year. We, we can't afford that. It is by virtue of our partnership with other Baptist churches all around the globe in this offering that we are going to be able in the next two years to send 20 more families overseas. So this is a beautiful thing. I, you know, I came here honestly with no Baptist history, didn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture. Lottie Moon sounded like something that ought to be on the Starbucks menu, but this is the best thing since sliced bread, I'm telling you. You really, this week, need to prayerfully consider how you can be a part. Don't miss this opportunity next Sunday to do this. You'll be getting a lot of information coming by email this week. Uh, Use that as a stimulus to pray and see how God might have you be a part of this beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, this morning, as you can tell, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, which will preoccupy us for quite a while. But before we go to that mountain, I want to take you to two other mountains that are prominent in the book of Deuteronomy in the 28th chapter where God took his people and put six of the tribes of Israel on one mountain and six on the other across a valley where they could see each other and they read differing declarations from God one to the other. The first read this, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. So on the one mountain, they read the blessings. And across the valley on the other mountain, in response, they read of the curses. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, you will be cursed when you come in, cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. So it's a graphic demonstration to God's people that they need to choose Do they want to live on the mount of blessing or do they want to live on the mount of cursedness? Where they obey the Lord or where they forsake Him? And so Jesus now comes to us in the New Testament and shows us as He sits on the mountain the path to the mount of blessing. It is those eight Beatitudes that we started last week. He said, if you want to live on this mountain, the Mount of Blessing, then build these eight things into your lives, and God will bless you. You know, you have to think about it. Why would anyone in their right mind not choose the Mountain of Blessing? Who would say, um, you know, Door number one, door number two. I'm going to take door number two, the Mount of Cursedness. Yes. You know, nobody would say that. But we do that. I just want you to be aware this morning. Whenever you embrace sin, that's where it takes you. Out of the place of the blessing of God. 
onto the mountain of cursedness. Um, And so what Jesus is saying to us in these precious few verses in Matthew chapter 5 is of the utmost importance to us this morning. And if you want to open up your Bibles, I'd like to pray for us, and we will cover the last half of those Beatitudes today. I'll do the first three. We'll respond in worship, and then Jeff will take the closing one at the close of our service. Let's pray. Father, please be kind to us today. Way more often than we wished, we find ourselves straying over to the wrong mountain and tasting of what it means to be distanced from the favor and the blessedness of our God. We know what that's like. Lord, we don't want to go there. We don't want to be there. We want to be free to live a life of blessedness where your favor is on our days. So, Give us ears to hear once again your goodness and the hope of your blessing today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus begins the latter part of the Beatitudes with this simple statement. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And there's a couple of problems you have if you stop and think about this right away. First of all, is the problem of works. Is Jesus saying that I can earn mercy by being merciful? That in order for me to to get mercy from God, I have to do works of mercifulness. Which if this whole thing is about grace and a gift, that introduces an element that's problematic. Um, I was helped by what John Piper was writing when he was thinking about this. He says, is this a salvation by works? Do we earn his mercy by our mercy? He says, no. No. Because an earned mercy would be a contradiction in terms. If mercy's earned, it's not mercy. It's a waged. Be assured, if, if we get anything good at the judgment, it will be mercy. 100% mercy. When God asks on that day, he says, for a record of your mercy at the judgment day, he will not be asking you for a punched time card where you would say, here it is, I did eight hours of mercy, now where's my wage of mercy in return? We won't say that to God. He says, instead, God will be asking for your medical charts. You'll hand them to Him in all lowliness and meekness, and there He will read the evidences of how you trusted Him as your divine physician and how the medicine of His Word and the therapy of His Spirit took effect in your life because you relied on them to heal you of your unmerciful disposition and you were merciful because he was merciful to you. When he sees the evidence of your faith and his healing, he will complete your healing and welcome you into the kingdom forever. Therefore, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Being merciful to others is evidence of truly having received mercy from God. And it's the evidence that God is looking for, for him to bestow mercy on us on that day. Um, So, problem number one is the problem is this works. It's not works. It's just evidence of mercy we've received. God is looking for that evidence in our lives on that day. The bigger problem is the problem of being merciful. God expects us to be merciful. And that's a problem sometimes. Um, You know, mercy has in view a response to those in need. And it is to be, without a doubt, a distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to be merciful. John put it this way in one of his letters in 1 John 3. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions 
and sees his brother in need, but has no pity, no mercy on him. How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Um, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown merciful. Are you merciful? Does that describe you? In the way you parent? In the way you deal with people in need? What keeps you from being merciful? Maybe, maybe you're just too busy to stop and help. Maybe you're too hurried to get involved. Maybe you've got more important things to do than mercy in your mind. What are you busy about? What really matters more to you than mercy? You you may have heard about this. This is splashed all over the national news. Uh, There are two girls' basketball teams in Dallas, Texas, private Christian girls' basketball team, um, which I'm sure nobody would have heard about any one of their games except this one because of the score. Did you hear about it? A hundred, one team scored a hundred points, and the other team scored zero. I'm not kidding. The final score, as I understand it, was a hundred to nothing. Now, at halftime, it was 59 to nothing, and the winning team continued to press and shoot threes, as I understand it, well into the fourth quarter. And the coach, who was fired after that game, of the winning team, the same day he sent an email to the local newspaper saying he would not apologize for a wide, a quote, wide margin victory. Hundreds of nothing, it's a wide margin victory. When my girls played with honor and integrity. See, I think sometimes we're, as ugly as it is, we're like that coach. We don't show mercy for darn good reasons, okay? for the reason of honor and integrity in our mind. Because we care about our team. We care about our kids. We care about doing our best. And so somehow, mercy gets squeezed out of the picture, and we think it's okay. It's not okay. Jesus says, if you want to live on the mount of God's blessing, then you need to be full of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So how do you become merciful? How do you take hurried, hard hearts like ours and make them merciful? Jesus tells a story that's way better about this than anything that I could say. I just want to read it to you. From Matthew 18, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Uh, One writer said 10,000 talents, this is an astronomical amount of money. Whole regions of uh, the Roman Empire did not pay this much in taxes. It's like $30 million, an unpayable amount. Well, Since this guy was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant fell on his knees before him and said, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Right. Pay back $30 million, whatever it is. The servant's master took pity, had mercy on him. And he canceled the debt and let him go. And if that was the whole story, that would be a phenomenal story. But the story continues. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is nothing compared to his debt. Think maybe like 30 bucks or something compared to 30 million. It's that kind of magnitude of difference. And he grabbed him and began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. Words that are ringing in his ears or should have been. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant back in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? See, I think the key to a merciful heart is remembering that the mercy that was given to us is way more than the mercy that we're being asked to give. Astronomically more. I mean, can you remember the massive spiritual debt that you have logged against God that He has forgiven you for? You remember that time, all those times when you lied to get out of trouble? The time you were unfaithful to a friend or worse, the time when you had had too much, a little too much, or looked too long or drove too fast or just took matters into your own hands and went out of God's pattern for your life? God remembers all those things and forgives them. He gives you mercy. How can you not? How can you not pass it on? We must remember the cross and Jesus' great, merciful, loving, costly sacrifice for us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, Jesus says. Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not just after our behavior. He's after our hearts. He wants us to be pure in heart. The promise here is absolutely stunning. The pure in heart are going to see God. No one has ever seen God in this life. Moses tried it. Back in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, Show me your glory. Let me see you face to face, God. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, Yahweh, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. We couldn't bear to see God. The angels see God in Revelation. They're standing around the throne with those elders and the four living creatures, and they see God, and they fall down on their faces before the throne and worship God. These amazing angelic beings. But there will come a day when the pure in heart, those who follow Christ, people like you and me are going to see God face to face. The angel showed me, John says, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any any curse, not in heaven. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face. If you follow Christ, if you're amongst the pure in heart, you'll stand before God and you'll see the maker and sustainer of all the wonders of this world, of your own body who knit you together in the fashion that you are, placed you where you are in your family and in the world. You're going to see him face to face and live to tell about it. This is for the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, obviously, it means to be without impurities, um, to have foregone sin. You know, this room is full of people who can testify to you that if you drink the sewage of porn or the stagnant waters of unfaithfulness or the toxic waste of anger or eat the cotton candy of greed, it affects your relationship with God instantly. 
It's like you can't see God anymore, and you can't hear him. What little we can see of God now, it's like he is gone. And you know what I mean. You've tasted it just like I have. Embrace sin, and the price you pay is knowing God. Isaiah said it this way. He says, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. So the pure in heart are people who have foregone sin, pushed it out of their lives best they can. But there's another meaning that's very related and tangled up with it, and it, James gives us some insight into it. He says, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. There's that language, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea of being pure in heart is the idea of having an undivided loyalty and devotion to God. An undivided heart. You know, like when, when a man gets engaged to his fiance, it's a pure love. She's the only woman he loves. He's not a bigamist. Hopefully, he doesn't have another wife stashed away somewhere. This is a pure love just for her. He has a pure heart, an undivided heart towards her. Contrary example I ran across uh, in reading this week has to do with uh, American industries that continue to do business with Nazi Germany throughout World War II. This was unbelievable to me. His book, IBM and the Holocaust, Edwin Black, shows that Hitler's regime used American technology to organize slave labor and to manage death camps. IBM facilities operated in Germany throughout the war. IBM's chairman, Thomas Watson, received Germany's Merit Cross for his contributions to German industry during wartime. The same could be said for ITT that sold components for, for buzz bombs. Ford and General Motors sold trucks. Standard Oil sold oil to the Germans. RCA, Chase Manhattan, and others did the same, selling what they could. William Hawkins says that when national security and profits collide, expect businessmen to be businessmen. But not so with you, Jesus says. You are to be of pure heart, of a singular devotion and affection and loyalty. Because the pure in heart are blessed. They're going to see God. Where does God fit into your hierarchy of delights and loves? Would you say that God's your great love? Or is he more like a hobby? Do you have lesser affections that cause you to sell out and be disloyal to him? Are there relationships that take that place in your world? See, the Bible calls those things idols, things that take God's place in our heart. We call them other names. We call them addictions or dysfunctions or habits. Maybe more positively, we could call them hobbies or goals or dreams or even some friends. Do you love him with a purity of heart where he is your great love? Because if so, you're blessed by God and you'll, you'll see him. How do you get a pure heart? Well, first thing, most important thing, is you've got to get a new one. Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, described it this way. He's speaking for God here who says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You need a new relationship with God through Christ. It's the only way to have a pure heart so that you're going to see God one day. There is no other way. And if you've got that relationship with God, one of the ways you keep that heart pure is by praying about it. David in the Old Testament was known as a man after God's own heart. He probably epitomized the pure-hearted follower of God better than anybody in the Old Testament. 
Not perfectly, but better than anybody. And this is his prayer from Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, pure heart, that I may fear your name. So if God's speaking to you about your need for a pure heart, this could be your prayer, should be your prayer. Psalm 86, verse 11, for an undivided heart that you may fear his name above all others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, he says, for they will be called sons of God. Sons, say sons and daughters of God. It's not so much that you're in God's family, doesn't seem to be the main idea, but that you're like God as your father. Kind of a like father, like son kind of thing. When you're a peacemaker, you're like God. You represent him rightly. You reveal him rightly. Um, because God's got a peace. Second Thessalonians says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. He's the Lord of peace. It's who God is. He makes peace with enemies, with rebels like you and me. You know the message God sent out to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of all. We can have peace with God through Jesus. When we are peacemakers and we offer peace with God to others, we are most like God. We are joining God in his great redemptive peace mission. When we share with our rebel neighbors and coworkers that Jesus has made it possible for them to lay down their arms and be at peace with God by his death and resurrection, we are most like God, joining him in his mission. But I think Jesus also wants us to know that when we make peace with one another in this room, that is essential to being sons and daughters of God, to being like him. And I just want you to know, honestly, I think we're pretty lousy at this. I don't think Christians make peace well. Um, we make detente well, which is, you know, a cessation of hostilities, where I will put on a happy face and say hello to you, maybe on a Sunday morning, but because of what you did to me, we're done. We are called to peace and reconciliation. Nothing less than that. Listen, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're worshiping, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled. Go and make real peace to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation, then worship. It's so important, Jesus says, that that's the order. And we really aren't very good at it. Most importantly, I think we give up too soon and settle for too little. Um, sometimes it is my, um, I say this, my arduous privilege to be involved in making peace between people who've had fallings out. And it, it ain't easy work, and it ain't fun work, but it is a great privilege. And I remember sitting in a conversation, one of many conversations I'd had between these two guys, and I had an hour blocked out for this conversation, and about two and a half hours into it, things had gone from bad to worse. And I thought, this, this is grand. They, they can't stand each other more than when they came in here. But probably about 2.45, things turned. And when I left at three hours, these guys left my office and were standing out in the parking lot outside of my office talking as brothers. It took a number of conversations. And it took three hours of very precious time on that day for them to be reconciled. Will you persevere and not settle for less than the blessed place of real peace and full reconciliation? 
Jesus says that's where God's blessing is on your life. Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peace is not always possible. Sometimes the other party just won't won't buy in. But as far as it depends on you, will you today, with whatever, whoever you're at odds with, commit to being reconciled, to doing the hard work of reconciliation, to waiting and praying and initiating and persevering and listening and being slow to anger and quick to forgive, being real peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. In the mid-1990s, there was horrific genocide in the nation of Rwanda, where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were slaughtered merely because of their tribal affiliations. A story that comes out of that is told by Mark Buchanan in one of his books. It says, a woman's only son was killed in that genocide in Rwanda. She was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. God, she prayed, reveal my son's killer to me. One night she dreamed she was going to heaven. But there was a complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. She had to walk down the street, enter the house, through the front door, go through its rooms, up the stairs, and exit through the back door. She asked God whose house this was. And in her dream, God told her, it's the house of your son's killer. Two nights later, after this dream... There was a knock at her door, and she opened it, and there stood a young man, and he was about her son's age. Yes, she said. He hesitated, and then he said, I am the one who killed your son. Since that day, I have had no life, no peace, so here I am. I am placing my life in your hands. Kill me. I am dead already. Throw me in jail. I am in prison already. Torture me. I am in torment already. Do with me as you wish. And the woman had prayed for just this moment. And now it had arrived, and she didn't know what to do. She found to her own amazement that she did not want to kill him, or throw him in jail, or torture him. In that moment of reckoning, she found she only wanted one thing. She wanted a son. So she said, I ask this of you. Come into my home and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes I would have made for my son. Become the son I lost. And so he did. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. If you would, um, please turn back to Matthew 5. And we're going to finish up there today, um, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you find that shocking? Do you find that an amazing way for Jesus to close this part of his sermon? 
I just put myself in the position of the disciples and they're sitting there and they're tracking along with Jesus and scribbling down the first seven Beatitudes and they're tracking along, yeah, 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 all right. Persecuted for righteousness sake? I can just see an immediate disciple huddle going on. Now, Jesus, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be more compelling to our cause and, and encouraging to those in the crowd around us if you just left out the word persecution? How about we frame it something like this? Blessed are those who are healthy, wealthy, and without conflict because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is not the life of true blessing. To be healthy, wealthy, and without conflict. Jesus says that the reward for being persecuted because of righteousness, because you are a singular lover of God, is the kingdom of heaven. I believe it was an amazing shock to the disciples as they sat on the mountainside, just about as much as it is a shock for you today sitting here. You see, because this doesn't fit our culture. Persecution? We're Americans. It's the land of the free and the home of the brave. We have rights. Not to be persecuted. This is what makes the final beatitude the test of all the others. This is, in my opinion, why this is such a searching, conflicting verse. It has has confronted my soul with questions like these. If I have never experienced any persecution at all, Where is righteousness being displayed in my life? If there's no righteousness, no conformity to God's will, how shall I enter the kingdom of heaven? For if there's conformity to what Jesus has taught before, then the kingdom is ours. But if not, if no poverty of spirit, no kingdom of heaven... No mourning, no comfort, no meekness, no inheritance, no hunger and thirst after righteousness, no satisfaction. If no mercy, no mercy received. If no purification of heart, no intimacy with God. If no peacemaking, no family resemblance. If no righteous living, no persecution, no kingdom. The connection of the phrase, because of righteousness, in in verse 10, and the phrase in verse 11, because of me, confirms the idea that this righteousness spoken of here is a righteousness in a life lived in Christ and an imitation of his life. It leaves no room for empty allegiances to Jesus. This type of allegiance results in righteousness. Some great pastoral help in 1 John on this point. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from his sh- in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practice righteousness is born of him. So what we learn is that this true righteousness, this righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, always involves a relationship with Jesus. You must be born again, Jesus taught. True righteousness is not done for its own sake. It's done for Jesus' sake. The mercy, the purity, the peacemaking of a disciple of Jesus comes from Jesus and is for Jesus. 
So you have to ask yourself, do I know Christ in this way? Is there fruit in my life? Or is there sin that keeps me from knowing God in this way? Is my relationship with him producing a life of righteousness that makes others around me uncomfortable? You see, persecution does not come to people that we are comfortable with. It comes to those that present something different. Why? Does such righteousness bring about persecution? And the simple answer is this. Jesus is offensive to a fallen world. He taught in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of the world That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I have spoken to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Paul adds to that same thought in Philippians 1, 29, where he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is so important for us to think about. Because in verse 11, Jesus takes the Beatitudes from this broad third person to second person. And points directly at those gathered. And says, blessed are you, Daniel Creswell, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples. It's not if, but when. That if you live a life of righteousness, insult and malice are coming. Physical opposition, torture, even death are in the realm of possibility. And why? Peter tells us. For this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found on his mouth. When, he hurled their, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. In verse 12, Jesus aligns his disciples with the prophets of old who were persecuted before them and basically makes the statement that in this life, in this world, God's people will be under the gun. That in every age, those who live for righteousness' sake are swimming upstream against culture. Whether that be secular culture, whether that be religious culture, they are swimming upstream and will experience the same thing that Christ did, persecution. It is that thought to me. That has ravaged my heart. So, Jeff... In your comfy little suburban neighborhood, as you run down the safe streets of Wake Forest with your little iPod in your ears, 
Are you feeling any pushback from the culture around you? If not, why not? Or have you become so comfortably numb that you're content just to flow, just to float downstream with popular culture? Why doesn't your life, Jeff, have a radical flavor to it? Have you asked yourself, where is the cross? Where is it in my life? Where are the men and women that are willing to lay down their lives for righteousness sake? Not those that just get up in an uproar about anything that they don't like. But those who live a life like Jesus and make their religious friends a bit uncomfortable and make their lost neighbors just have serious questions about who you are because you're weird. Where is that? Where is the impact of the 600 people that sit in this church on a Sunday morning in the community outside of here? Lastly, how can the persecuted rejoice? Once again, Jesus says rejoice and be glad. When you're persecuted, hey, rejoice, be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. That is the single reason. Your reward will be great in heaven. It's the same eternal perspective that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's perspective is that affliction achieves or brings about an eternal weight of glory. What is your perspective? Do you really believe that insults, that malice, that possible physical opposition that you will receive from neighbors and family members and coworkers and friends and fellow students is achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs them all? Do you really believe that? Once again, the scriptures point us directly to our example. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So today, what does the way of the cross in your life look like? What are the areas of sin that keep you from a pure heart? From peacemaking? From showing mercy.
You know, as Larry set it up for us, which mountain do you resemble? Who do you resemble more? The culture in which you live? Or the Savior that you profess to believe in? Which is it? Blessing or curses? Today, as we respond to the message, uh, I want to encourage you to ask yourself those questions. And if you want to come down and pray and have someone pray for you, we would love for that to happen. But Jesus is all about your heart. And if you have never given your life to Christ, then this type of life is impossible for you. And I want to encourage you to take time to pray and to think about that. And if you want to talk more, we'd love to talk with you. But as a church family, those who have experienced the grace of God, what does the way of a cross look like for you today? And what do you need to lay down and to drive a stake in the ground today and say no more? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us great passionate lovers of you that our eyes would be fixed upon you the author and perfecter of our faith and that we, you would help us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us May we live such righteous lives that the world around us persecutes us and insults us for your name's sake and your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus.